everybody. Welcome to the Happy Dog Online. Uh, welcome to Happy Dog Takes on the World. Um, I hope you are having a hot dog at home. I've got mine, courtesy of Mike Sobeck. Um, and I wanted to say a special thanks to our partners, especially the City Club, for making this possible. Um, we are uh, eagerly hoping to come back when it's safe. Um, but in the meantime, we love being with you and we wouldn't have been able to do that without the City Club. Um, I also wanna mention our other great partners in this series, the uh, Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle East Studies and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. And of course, uh, IdeaStream in the form of our uh, illustrious moderator, Tony Ganser. <laughs> we are especially pleased to have with us. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tony and thank everyone for tuning in and we will see what the happy dog soon. That's awesome. Thanks, Sean. Uh, first things first. You can't hear it, but it's it's definitely gonging. Uh, thanks so much, uh, everybody being here. I rushed from the studio for this event, so uh, it'll be great. Uh, we'll, we'll make do with what we have. Just gonna read a few remarks here. Hello and welcome to the first ever uh, Happy Dog Takes on the World virtually online. I am Tony Ganser, host and producer for 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, the uh, NPR station for Northeast Ohio. The coronavirus pandemic has disrupted life across the globe, profoundly affecting supply chains, healthcare, the economy. It's also exposed the harsh realities of racial, ethnic, economic, political, and health disparities, the effects of which many countries have tried to minimize or ignore for decades. This isn't new. Now, as the pandemic slows before a probable second wave, global leaders and governments are weighing options and contemplating decisions that will define history and shape the world for years to come. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions, and we hope that you do. Uh, I have a window open now, eagerly waiting uh, them to come in. You can text them to the number 330-541-5794. That number again, and it's on the screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, all one term, and we'll work them in uh, best we can. So uh, to introduce our illustrious panelists for the first ever virtual forum, Dr. Shanna Marshall, Associate Director of the Institute for Middle East Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Walid Haspoon, Dr. Walid Haspoon, the Richard L. Chambers Professor of Middle Eastern Studies in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alabama. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. And Milan Estereo, the Charles R. Emmerich Jr., Kalfi Halter, and Griswold Professor of Law at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. I hope I got all the names in. Welcome. Thank you, Tony. Yes, you did. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Uh, and one thing we want to uh, mention about uh, Drs. Marshall and Haspoon is uh, you're appearing as editors of the Middle East Report, um, and you can follow that at M-E-R-I-P 
online on Twitter or merip.org for that work. Uh, to start this conversation, this is such a, a broad topic. We can go in many directions, and maybe we will. Uh, who knows? But I wonder if each of you, uh, starting maybe with Dr. Hospon, can talk about maybe one thing you think really will change or won't change uh, as a result of the pandemic. You can go either way, buyer's choice here, um, about this pandemic. Uh, one thing that will change for sure, uh, you know, I mean, some of the obvious things are, you know, just the, the economic impact, I think, on the United States, on, on, the, on the global economy, um, and, you know, how this is dealt with. So I think just, you know, the, 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 this is not so much like I think will it will not change. It's just this issue of there's going to be this problem of how we, um, how do we respond to this, to this crisis um, and, and how are the different responses around the world? So I do kind of fear that we're at this moment that's exaggerating the, the drift towards nationalism, towards fragmentation between different states, the erosion of international norms, international order. Um, that has seen a cycle of, especially in the Middle East, sort of expanded conflict at, at the same time that the U.S. is kind of doesn't have major, I mean, we could talk about this, but doesn't have major interest or threats in the region, I mean, relative to the Cold War and in, in previous uh, eras. So, I, I, you know, one kind of issue is the, the global concern for these kinds of issues, like global concern for internet, uh, uh, inequality, for social welfare, um, that had been part of kind of the the global sort of, especially the U.S. approach to the world, was concerned about development, was concerned about, uh, to some degree, human rights in, in various contexts. I kind of fear that um, uh, with this kind of erosion of these global norms, the erosion of American interest in it, um, we're going to see things just get worse. So that doesn't mean that's not a prediction. That's a sense that that's a real challenge that I think politics at the global level, but also at the international and local level, needs to mobilize because only if Americans and Germans and French and Egyptians, you know, see their issues like global health, public health as an issue that's part of a global system, you know, maybe there'll be a mobilization towards different forms of cooperation and rethinking uh, the, the global system. Mm -hmm. um, Milena, thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I absolutely agree with everything um, that Dr. Hasbun just said, but um, I would just add that in terms of things that are perhaps not changing and um, this is really a, a you know um, a sad observation if you will is that in some countries where things were already dire things are just as dire now you know perhaps a little bit worse but you know in places like Yemen for example where there's been this conflict raging for many years things were already really bad and so you know I'm not sure that the pandemic is really changing things significantly maybe you know making things a little bit harder for, for folks there but you know th things are sort of relatively the same for for people on the ground there the one thing that might change is um the um sort of significance and, and, and power of the oil producing countries. So for example, Saudi Arabia, um, which is a which is a huge oil producing country, we'll have to kind of see what happens with that because right now we know that the um, um, oil prices are at a really, you know, all time low. Um, there really isn't as much demand as, as there used to be. The price per bar barrel has dropped significantly. And so we're going to have to see what that does to the importance and influence of Saudi Arabia, you know, in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marshall? Um, I, yeah, I think that um, COVID is really um, just the sort of latest agent <laughs> that's exacerbating all of these pre-existing sort of structural inequalities. Um, 
you know, repression of minorities is just exploding, right, in places where, um, for example, Muslim and Hindu violence against one another, right, is, and, you know, it's being used as a, um, as a way of fomenting violence against uh, the other group claiming that, you know, Muslims are spitting on Hindus to try to spread the COVID virus or um, all of these other sort of conspiracy theories that you see promulgated on Twitter and, and Facebook and other social media. Um, and a lot of uh, this sort of framing, this, this sort of, we're gonna die one way or another, what difference does it make? You know, if it's COVID or if I starve to death because I can't go to work. So in places like Lebanon and Tunisia um, and Iraq, you see protesters in the streets and they're saying, you know, I, I'm literally, I can't go to work. I have no money to buy food for my family. Um, I can either starve and die from poverty or I can die from this virus, what's the difference? Um, and in places like Yemen, um, you know, it, uh, a lot of people say it's better to go out and die, die fighting the Saudis, right, than die at home of COVID or die in a hospital bed of COVID. So you see just sort of the ramping up um, of the intensity of conflicts and of intercommunal violence and of all of the um, sort of negative things that that existed as, as structural realities for a long time, largely because of um, inequalities um, and uh, poor governance, and the, of course, the legacy of U.S. imperialism, which we can talk about later as well. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but first, Dr. Hospoon, maybe if you can expand on that point, are we looking at maybe two or or multiple uh, forms of this pandemic, uh, especially thinking about the reality of what we've seen in uh, quote-unquote Western countries compared to what we've just heard about what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, we know that the effects of the pandemic are different, but it seems like the socio-political situation, it's a totally different planet uh, for some places in particular. So maybe can you, can you tease that out a little more about how different the experience is maybe in the Middle East compared to what we're seeing here in the States or, or other quote-unquote developed countries? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously depends by um, by country, um, and um, I mean, one thing is I'm not sure if we've seen this play out. Um, you know, some of it's just because there's not testing. Some of it's because um, because there's not the same measures in in you know. Um, I mean, Jordan and in Lebanon, different places have had policies, have had lockdowns, very harsh one in Jordan for a while. Um, um, uh, Iran also. I mean, there, there's been efforts to mitigate, but I'm just wondering, like, in the same way that in the United States, we worry about the second wave, if across the region, there was going to be a, a further wave. So I kind of wonder, like, as this plays out, and in places like Iraq, where I don't think there has been the same kind of mitigation efforts, what's going to be the impact, public health impact um, in the next six months, you know, year? So I don't, you know, so we're not, we haven't fully seen this played out, especially in the places that have already had their health, public health system strained, or places that don't have good public health uh, um, infrastructures, or where it's been privatized, so only a few can can benefit. So I kind of, uh, you know, think this is happening at the same time as, um, like has been mentioned, economically, um, the the some of the main drivers of regional economies like oil. Uh, so the oil states are going to have this this squeeze on their incomes, which also squeezes the incomes of workers from other parts of the region in, in South Asia who, who work there. So they're being kind of uh, squeezed. Issues like, uh, you know, tourism is also down. 
uh, uh, you know, destroyed. Um, uh, in the Gulf states, their, you know, their aviation industry was also kind of like a, a key uh, element of their economies. And so those have been like radically, drastically shut down. So I think like the, the, uh, the I fear the mechanisms to try to deal with these challenges, like the resources aren't gonna be there. There's gonna be also maybe less Western aid for the countries that, that rely on aid, less uh, funds from the Gulf. So I kind of feel like the, the, the real challenge is not just the immediate public health crisis, but gonna be, I mean, uh, many of these countries are very indebted. Lebanon is having a financial crisis at the right. same time. Um, so, so, you know, they're trying to borrow more. Well, imagine the global economy where everybody's trying to borrow. What's, what's gonna happen to the international financial system? Um, so this is, this, these are kind of my, my worries, I think kind of like the next, next phase the next year to two or three out is going to be this major financial crisis with the fear that a lot of uh, institutions don't have the resources. So what is that? What happens when there's a strain on resources? The inequality just gets, you know, exacerbated. The ones that can survive, find mechanisms to survive and try to limit the, the, the obligations to everybody else. Milena, I wonder if you can talk more about the institutions and the mechanisms in place, because we have seen uh, the, the, Post uh, World War II institutions, the the World Health Organization, uh, we've got OPEC as well, uh, playing roles in this pandemic. But I wonder if you can talk about: Do you see them being strained in a new way by the situation, or maybe maybe being exploited in a new way by some countries that we hadn't seen to this degree uh, before this pandemic? Sure, Tony. And be before answering that, I would just add one more thing. Um, about the differences between um, the pandemic, perhaps here in the United States and some other countries, the whole idea, the whole concept of social distancing, which for us is relatively easy to implement, might be totally impossible to implement in some places. So for example, in some of the Gulf states, like in Qatar, 85% of the population is basically the migrant workforce and they live in very, you know, sort of squalid conditions and in dormitory style housing. Um, and so, you know, how do you, how do you implement social distancing in a place like that? So I would just, you know, the basic, basic difference is, uh, you know, th that whole idea might not be able to be implemented there. But to talk about the institutions, you mentioned, for example, the World Health Organization, obviously a very important organization. Um, it is, you know, sort of trying to do its best, but we have seen the WHO um, attacked by the US. President Trump announced that we would cut funding to the WHO. And in the United States, it's sadly become this political issue, if you will, where many on the GOP side, side seem to be attacking the WHO, saying that the WHO is in cahoots with the Chinese. You know, there's the conspiracy theory that the Chinese basically created the virus in the lab and, and unleashed it. So we have seen a lot of pressure on the WHO from the US and for perhaps from some other parts of the world. Um, OPEC has had its, its, its moments as well. I, I mentioned earlier, um, Saudi Arabia, there's been this um, battle of oil prices between Russia and Saudi Arabia um, that OPEC hasn't exactly been able to solve. Um, Saudi Arabia has accused Russia of um, not being uh, not being willing to implement, um, you know, to, to cut down, to, to agree essentially to a, a limit on oil production. Um, Saudi Arabia responded to that by basically um, dropping oil to the market at very low prices. You know, Russia, of course, has accused Saudi Arabia of wrongdoing. So we haven't actually seen international organizations 
at their best. We haven't seen international organizations able to do much. You know, and the one that you haven't mentioned is the United Nations. You know, arguably speaking, the Security Council, you know, can, can seize itself um, when, when there's a threat to international peace and security. You, you could say that this is a threat to international peace and security, and yet we haven't really seen much happening um, at the UN level. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Just normal UN dysfunction or, or disagreement with the P5, the Permanent Five, or something well, new? Well, I mean, I think in many ways the disagreement among the, the, the P5, in particular the disagreement, the, the you know uh, long-lasting disagreements between the U.S. on one side and then Russia and China on the other, have been perhaps exacerbated by the crises. You know, so things are more tense than before. And I, I honestly think that countries are focused on dealing with the pandemic within their own borders and are are, are less engaged in diplomacy and trying to negotiate solutions together. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marshall, um, normally we wait until the end for questions, but since they're streaming into my screen, I'll just fit them in as we talk. Um, and we've got two questions which are kind of related here, and it's both about uh, the widening inequality gap, I guess. Is the pandemic uh, going to exacerbate the power differential between North and South or developing and, and uh, developed countries? Is this going to make the problems that we already have much, much worse? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's no crisis where the, you know, the ruling class doesn't come out on top. And, you know, you see the, the stories reported in the newspapers every day that, you know, Amazon is, is getting making you know money hand over fist every day. All of the small business administration um, bailout money went to these huge you know major corporations with you know hundreds and hundreds of employees. Um, there's no crisis that isn't exploited by people who have connect you know political and and financial connections to the administration, the current administration in the United States, and that is the same pattern that you see in most other places. Um, I would also say really that it this crisis has, I think, in a way that previous ones might not have uh, have laid so bare, um, the, the way that the inequalities within the United States really mimic global inequalities also. So the, the conditions that you see, you know, that we see in, in like prisons in El Salvador. We also see in homeless shelters in the United States and migrant detention centers in the United States and Rikers, um, the breakdown of supply chains and massive shortages that you see in other countries. We also see in the United States, incredible inequalities in access to care that we see in the developing world. We also see in many, 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 uh, areas in the United States, um, the crisis profiteering that you see, um, leaders, your own leaders spreading uh, ridiculous conspiracy theories, right? So historically, you think about some of the conspiracy theories that were spread by African dictators about the AIDS crisis, right? And they're a lot of those, you know, a lot of the new generation of African leaders are also spreading ridiculous conspiracy theories about inhaling, you know, steam, 100 degree steam, so you know, sanitizing your lungs and and drinking Hennessy cognac and that sanitizing your throat. So, but we also in the United States have our same you know our political leaders spreading these ridiculous conspiracy theories, and you have the government sort of suppressing the number of infections and the number of deaths and not reporting on things and 
you know, people who die in their homes aren't included in the official COVID death count. So all of the things that we criticize developing countries for are very clearly present um, in a in a uh, in a large number of areas in the United States. So I think um, we'll see increasingly that I, I hope that Americans start to realize that um, that changes need to be made in our own society um, as well. Uh, zooming back out a little, Dr. Hotspoon, another question here about uh, international institutions. We've got the IMF, the World Bank. Uh, what roles are they playing in this? And is there potential for wealthier countries to uh, further uh, what the questioner said was a neo-imperialism in the Middle East? Um I mean, what you know, I, I think like, um, it was mentioned the idea that you would think that the United Nations would be, as an international institution, responding to the crisis. Um, the economic institutions, you know, um, I think they've been in a process for um, like the last decade or so of beginning to realize the limits of some of the previous policies of the IMF and the World Bank and the support for kind of market based neoliberalism as an answer to, um, to questions of development. Um, and so, uh, you know, so the, the, there's a sense that, that, but that kind of um, that kind of upgrading, rethinking of their policies, really needs to happen very quickly now. And I don't know if they're ready in a position. The other thing is that a lot of the funding for such institutions have to come from donors or have to come from a kind of collective, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, international effort that relies on states that have certain surpluses. And those that that kind of asset access to the surpluses might not be there in the same way. So I kind of fear that both on the policy end about having the kind of policy um, uh, strategies that are going um, uh, to help to, to come up with a new form of development um, at the same time as the resources just kind of might not be there. But they could play a role. But part of the way they, they gain direction is through Menmia, the, the major, the major um, uh, you know, um, the major donor states. So you need countries like the United States and Germany. Uh, um, to, and to some degree China, to, to sort of like give direction. And we don't have that kind of uh, uh, coalescing around a kind of a new vision for the global economy. So that's kind of what's missing. Without that kind of new vision and new direction, it's not likely that they're gonna play a really transformative role. Um, there's gonna be states seeking aid in the same way, but how much can the global economy really sustain in terms of, of credit um, is gonna be another problem. And Milena, right away, I think about the power play that we saw with the WHO, where uh, President Trump was blaming the WHO for mishandling this pandemic and, and you know, threatening the funding, which is so vital. I think number one uh, funder is the United States of the WHO. As of 2018, number two was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Interesting enough, I just learned that. Uh, but I wonder if you can um, pick that apart a little more, this power dynamic of certain countries which which can strengthen or weaken these uh, international institutions kind of at a whim, it seems. Sure. Well, so Tony, you already mentioned the five permanent members of the Security Council, the U.S., Russia, China, the UK, and France. Those countries have veto power in the Security Council. So the veto power is basically what you said. It's kind of like on a whim deciding to not allow something to happen without any justification. And so the five permanent members of the Security Council already have enormous power in the global arena. Um, what we're maybe 
what we're maybe learning from the crisis is um, that you know many countries actually depend on each other more than they realize they do. So for example, you mentioned, uh, or somebody mentioned China earlier, the Chinese investment has been crucial in some areas of the world, in Africa and the Middle East. That is now not happening. So, you know, with China kind of pulling back, um, it might be that the US or some other countries kind of want to move in. But at the same time, because of the strain on everybody's economies, they might not be able to, right? So, so we're going to kind of have to see how that dynamic um, among the five permanent members of the Security Council, how that um, how that plays out. And just to go back to your, um, you know, your question about the IMF and the World Bank, if any good comes out of it, you know, I think we're always looking for the silver lining, the positive effects. If any good comes out of it, it might be that the existing lending and development policies as applied to the global south are really not sustainable because they trap countries in this vicious cycle of debt that really can last forever right so if there's any good that comes out of it it might be that you know we might have to rethink the entire global system of kind of lending and development to come up with policies that actually benefit the recipients of, of, of the aid of the development of the, of the lending without trapping them and creating these dependencies. Dr. Marshall, I wonder if we can, even though we had a nice silver lining um, mentioned there by Melina, if if we can go back to the, ne the negative, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I'm very curious about exploitation of this pandemic, especially by autocrats. Um, uh, we saw that there... I say it this way, it seems like President Trump wanted to turn the screws a bit on Iran when Iran was uh, very much being affected by this um, this coronavirus early on. And I wonder if you can talk more about the potential for or, or the existence already of the exploitation of the pandemic by, by certain actors. Uh, yeah, I don't do silver linings anyway, so <laughs> that's a good question for we'll me. We'll try to get back to it later. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see them very often. Um, uh, although, actually, to to just derail that for a second, I think um, maybe the pullback of U.S. troops overseas um, from uh, mil overseas military bases as a result of the pandemic um, may be a silver lining um, that we can maybe talk about uh, a bit later. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, lots of actors that are trying to take advantage of the situation. I mean, um, you know, U.S. sanctions um, have been a major obstacle to a lot of countries um, trying to uh, put together a response to the pandemic. And it's, uh, it's, it's a unique situation because it's not like we're just hurting Iran or we're just hurting uh, Cubans or we're just hurting Venezuelans because when that uh, when the virus uh, multiplies and spreads, of course, it doesn't observe uh, borders, right? So the more people that are infected globally, the more the virus is going to spread, right? So if we're making it more difficult for Cuba and Venezuela and Iran um, to treat people with the virus, then we're making it easier for the virus to travel outside of those places and multiply. Um, and um, Certainly other actors are also taking advantage of this. You see, um, or maybe not taking advantage of it, but maybe actually even moving into the breach in some ways. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are praising actors, you know, drug cartels and, and 
gangs in Central America and the Taliban and these other um, traditionally very bad actors for sort of stepping into the breach while their government, their governments are completely um, incapable of uh, mounting a response and enforcing curfews and um, enforcing social distance and delivering food parcels and delivering uh, medical supplies to people who are uh, sheltering in place. Um, so you see, uh, I mean, I don't know what they're going to sort of do with that. I mean, they're certainly doing it, you know, to preserve the lives of their own members, certainly. Um, so it's in their own self-interest to do that. Um, but when we come out on the other side of this, I mean, globally, there's already very little trust in formal institutions and very little trust in governments. Um, and when we see that dynamic between these um, informal actors uh, being present and being seen and being observed by people to to contribute something positive to the response, and they see, you know, the Brazilian government or whatever other government being, you know, totally sort of paralyzed. Um, when we come out on the other end of the crisis, that um, that uh, lack of trust and faith in formal governing institutions is going to be even worse. And I think that is sort of a root, sort of structural cause for a lot of a lot of violence um, uh, in in places all over the world. And so I think that's a really big. Um, factor that we need to look at and is definitely, um, I guess, a black lining. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to make it a little more silver later, uh, but uh, I'm not sure who would be best to to answer this. Maybe, Milena, we can start with you. Um, but in the European Union, for example, you've got a number of countries who are under one banner right away. So you have multiplied uh, research capability, but also just containment capability to a point, uh, the limits of the EU, you know, notwithstanding. But if you see certain countries kind of becoming lone wolves or, or more so lone wolves, and, and as Dr. Marshall, you mentioned that you know, <laughs> the, the virus doesn't care about borders. So by letting it proliferate somewhere else, it ultimately can come back to you. So I wonder, do you, uh, Milena, think that the EU is in a stronger position maybe than the United States even, uh, especially with our relationship with some allies and, uh, and uh, diplomacy in, in recent months past, especially? Sure. So um, although the EU has, you know, over the last six, seven decades been unified on many things, including, you know, has had a common foreign policy. When we think of the EU countries' responses to COVID-19, we actually see a uh, lack of harmony, if you will. So the two lone wolves that I would mention, the two countries that I would specifically single out are Sweden, which as some of our listeners know, basically has not locked down, has not imposed, you know, has not closed down restaurants and cafes and has essentially encouraged citizens to respect social distances, distancing without actually um, um, ordering it, if you will, from, from the government level. And that is in stark contrast to all of Sweden's Scandinavian neighbors. And that is in stark contrast to many of the other countries. Like if you compare that to, for example, uh, France, Italy, or Spain, where citizens have for weeks now been essentially um, not able to leave their homes much. In France, for example, you can leave your house, but if you leave your house, you have to print out this form, and it's like an official declaration of intent, 
what is the purpose of your outing. And if you're going for a walk or a jog, you can only go within a kilometer radius of your home and you're limited to one hour of day a day. And you know, the police is enforcing this very, very harshly. Now, the other lone wolf that I, not lone wolf, but the other country that I would mention here is Germany. Germany has had a very, very good response to the pandemic, which many people um, attribute to the fact that the German hospital system in general is really, really good. They have many more um, ventilators, many more, you know, other pieces of medical equipment more widely available. They also had testing available very widely, very early on, and were testing very aggressively. So we saw that their rate of hospitalizations and then ultimately the mortality rate is much lower than in other countries. And we actually saw Germany sending doctors and nurses to Italy and to Spain to help them. So I definitely think that Europe you know, has not been unified in, in, in their different responses. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, if anything, I would compare it to the United States and the different states in the United States, you know, because in the United States, we've also seen very, very different responses from, from, from state to state. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the EU will come out stronger than the United States. I think we're roughly speaking in, in, in a similar position. It's uh, great to see so many questions already coming in, uh, but if you have questions for our panelists, uh, feel free to text them, 330-541-5794. That's the number, 330-541-5794. It's on your screen. You can also tweet them at the City Club, all one word. I'm trying to work them in as fast as I can. We have uh, lots of them coming in, which is great. Um Dr. Hospon, I don't know if you want to take this next one. It's actually about onshoring and economic restructuring um, and whether or not you think that this pandemic might realign or, or yeah, restructure our supply chains to see more uh, domestic capacity, both in the United States, but maybe also in other countries. Uh, yeah, I assume you're going to see, and you already have sort of seeing this kind of trend and even within the dynamics of you know, globalization, international political economy, there are different times and ways where there has been uh, um, uh, you know, relocating uh, um, uh, suppliers more locally in different sectors and different, different industries. Um, but you know, so I think uh, immediately there's a kind of, uh, let's say emergency sort of onshoring, like can we find domestic suppliers? Can we shift production of these kind of products? Um, so you're, you're seeing that now. So what's gonna be, how long is that gonna go on? Um, when is there going to be actually new investment? So one question is, you know, at what point will there be a rethinking of production or will it be kind of like, you know, the collapse of this, uh, you know, communism where it's like we have all this, you know, um, uh, plant, you know, how, much, how, how are we going to use it to do something, to, to produce something new? So I don't know how, how quickly you could sort of completely like reorganize um, these supply chains. And also there's going to be a kind of cost to it because many of these things have been, you know, um, structured with very sort of thin supply chains that, that, that do a product here, ship it to China, you know, assemble something there, ship it back, and, and you know, how to reorganize such a product in a way that there's still going to be demand for it, people to buy. So I think, you know, that becomes a real sort of business challenge. What kinds of things can be produced locally? It looks a little bit like the interwar period, where if you look at many different economies, uh, um, I mean, uh, you know, Europe and even parts of the Middle East, where when you had a decline in, in global trade or during the kind of civil war when you didn't have cotton being, you know, exported and you had uh, from the United States and you had other markets in Egypt and elsewhere, um, 
you know, there is a kind of mobilization for domestic production. So are we gonna, but that's a kind of, uh, you know, decades long process of reorganizing the national economies. Are we going to see that? And I, you know, I, I just think that's a that's a kind of policy question, and I don't know how much there's going to be a clear, definitive answer and a clear, fully restructuring. Uh, and and uh, um, and I think the EU is key about this. To what degree is the EU going to say we our project was about integration, but this is like the worst kind of crisis for that. We might all have social welfare systems and public health systems, and we might uh, cooperate in terms of, of, of technological development and. And, and things like that, but but the, the the vision of integration of mobility is like really being being hit. So are, are they going to try to relaunch that, or are they going to like readjust, kind of like you had you know after World War One on a more kind of national scale, national model, focus on, on uh, you know national systems, the kind of production that you might have had at that time, that kind of small manufacturing, the technological base was the kind of thing that might have been done within the national scale, but many kinds of products now. Have been based on drawing materials and technology and skills from from you know specialized producers or cheaper producers globally. So you know that kind of reorganization would be a sort of a much more massive task. Interesting. This is an aside, and I don't know if you have a comment on this, Dr. Hospone, but um, I had seen that the UK secured uh, PPE from Egypt. And some of the comments that I saw on Twitter, which is not the most authoritative source, but uh, people were asking, why would a country like Egypt be supplying PPE to the UK? Don't the Egyptian people need that? And honestly, I, I didn't know even where to look for an answer about PPE supplies in the Middle East and whether they had it any stockpile that they could deal with their own crises before sending it off to the UK. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that particular case, but you do, you have seen sort of like the fact that these things become marketplaces where there's a, you know, private investor who owns this, they can, you know, they, they get a, uh, it's fairly cheap to, to export, you know, uh, um, uh, to, to market abroad. And so that maybe that's the, the, you know, there's a, there's a high demand and, and British can pay more. I mean, I don't really, know the details of this question, but you've seen some of these kind of, in this moment, this kind of logic of, of the market sort of taking over supplies. Uh, Dr. Marshall, we've got a, a very easy question for you. And I say <laughs> that uh, uh, joking. Um, the question is, how has COVID-19 exacerbated the relationship between I Israel and Palestine? We know Israel, they've been trying to form a government, uh, but how how has that relationship shifted, if at all, uh, during this? That might actually be a better question for Walid. Um, I think he focuses a little bit more on Israel-Palestine. Um, but I do know that... Um, you know, for Gaza, which is basically, again, an, an open air prison, <laughs> um, you know, when you have conditions like that and you can't get materials in and you can't get people out um, to get treatment at the hospitals, even under ordinary circumstances for advanced cases of, of childhood cancer or, or any other sort of disease, um, it's going to just absolutely decimate um, the population. Um, and I think that uh, the way Israel always tries to really contain, um, especially Palestinians in Gaza, um, uh, you know, pressing them into, you know, smaller and smaller spaces and making sure that they can't get through checkpoints, which are literally uh, choke points where people are just piled on top of each other. 
um, waiting to get through. Um, these are conditions where the disease is going to spread rapidly. I mean, when I mentioned earlier that there may be a pullback of U.S. troops um, from overseas bases in response to the COVID epidemic, maybe you'll see a pullback of um, Israeli military officials, um, IDF soldiers from different um, areas in Gaza um, and in Palestinian neighborhoods in the in the West Bank, where they're you know the, they're agents in the Palestinian Authority, because those individuals are scared of of getting infected by COVID. So, so, you know, when there's a, a withdrawal of a, of a repressive apparatus, um, because the individuals in that apparatus fear getting infected, that can also be a positive if, if people are, you know, able to engage in solidarity um, and help each other in the absence of those um, forces that were there before, that could definitely be um, a positive. But if, you know, Palestinians can't get access to basic medical supplies, and they certainly can't even under ordinary circumstances. I don't see how um, they're going to be able to manage this uh, crisis in in any sense of the term manage. So, Dr. Husband, did you have thoughts on that? Well, I would just add. I mean, one, Israel is housing its own, you know, political crisis, trying to form a government. You know, has had three elections, might have a fourth. So, so they have those kind of internal issues. But one observation that relates to this case, but I think it relates to other cases, is the dynamics of this kind of pandemic um, leads to a dynamic of kind of isolation. So we talk about social distancing in a certain way, but also if you look about the relationship between Israel and, and the Palestinians, the, 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 the dynamics of this kind of post-Oslo phase has been sort of Israel sort of pulling out in the sense of, of trying to sort of contain the, you know, contain borders, separate themselves from the Palestinians, come up with these kind of strange geographies where you can have kind of bypass roads and, and different kind of walls and you know this kinds of thing. Um, so the dynamics of the, the, I think the pandemic are not a dynamic that might lead to cooperative solutions and sort of engagement, but actually the opposite. And I think you're, you're finding that in other places where the dynamics move towards uh, uh, individual isolation. People suffer the consequences themselves, not collectively in the sense that each is, you know, they're all, they're all going through a kind of a similar crisis, but the experience of each individual is, is defined by the individual, defined by the family. So you get this kind of fragmentation. And only if people can remobilize and say, well, is there a collective solution? Can we all act together? Can we all follow these norms? Can we all mobilize you know, mutual aid to help others? This kind of thing. Only if we sort of rethink it in that way can there be a kind of different politics. But many of the politics are moving more towards this isolation, separatization, um, uh, each individual suffering the consequences and dealing with their own situation themselves. Hmm. Um, Milena, a question here. I'm I'm maybe interpreting it wrong, uh, so maybe I'll ask it two different ways. But uh, do you have thoughts on how the pandemic might influence populist movements and and uh, the the rise of the far right that we've seen in so many countries? Do you think that uh, these leaders in these movements might be emboldened by public health? restrictions that have to be put in place? Or do you think that uh, maybe there could be a, a counterwave against uh, those far-right movements that so many countries have seen? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that some leaders and some far-right movements are, you know, have been trying to exploit the crisis to their advantage um, in places where um, authoritarian regimes already are in place. We have already seen 
if you will, that kind of an uh, exploiting of the crisis to impose more repressive conditions on various populations. Um, so, for example, the um, Algerian government has imposed mm -hmm. restrictions on people there, um, for, you know, partially in response to the pandemic, but um, in a move that many have labeled as essentially repressive and trying to get rid of any political dissent. In Saudi Arabia, for example, we saw the tightest lockdown conditions imposed on this one region of Saudi Arabia, which is predominantly Shiite, whereas the rest of the Saudi re leadership is Sunni. And so, um, you know, people there have complained about that and have said basically, you know, why are we under the, the strictest lockdown and not, not the rest of the country? And then I would say that um, even here in the United States, we have definitely seen, um, we've definitely seen the rise of populism over the past few years, but I, but I do think that we've seen more and more protest against some of the restrictive conditions imposed by various state governors. Um, we have seen protests from the far right. And, you know, Tony, you're probably, you know, I'm sure you cover this in your radio program, but there were protesters um, over the past few days at Dr. Amy Acton's house. Dr. Amy Acton is the um, head of the Ohio uh, Public Health Department, there were basically right-wing protesters at her house with anti-Semitic um, signs on display, um, some perhaps armed, you know, so, so, you know, and that goes back to what Dr. Marshall said earlier, how um, we're seeing some of the same dynamics here in the United States as we see um, in other countries throughout the world. And I would say that um, definitely we'll see, as Dr. Husboon mentioned, um, more isolationism, more restrictions imposed in minority groups, uh, less engagement between governments with those minority groups. You know, think of, for example, Turkey, where um, there are millions of Syrian refugees living already. Um, there has definitely been, been lots of pushback from the far right in Turkey against the presence of so many Syrian refugees. Um, I think that's actually going to get worse as living conditions and economics become harder on, on, on everyone. And what does this mean, uh, Dr. Marshall, maybe, for, uh, I guess, uh, grassroots change? Because if, if we have minority rights already being uh, um, affected or, or further restricted, um, and we can't gather, we can't demonstrate, we can't mobilize in the mm -hmm. same ways as before. Um, what does that mean for, for the power of the people, I guess? Um, I mean, you know, this has been sort of, uh, this has been commented on, you know, I've, I've seen lots of article, great articles online, right, that the, the left just isn't present right? Because we're actually observing all of these norms and we're staying in our homes and we're social distancing. Um, it's the right, um, it's the far right that's out in the streets and, and making themselves known and definitely taking advantage of the opportunity to be, to control the narrative, um, to get themselves in, in the media, to, to be on television and to be sort of the voice of people in the United States who really are suffering. I mean, um, you know, you do have, in in some respects, you know the the complaints that they had, the grievances that they have are are very real, right? Um, I mean, people are really suffering. Um, so instead of uh, 
you know, payroll payments that other countries are doing. You know, the U.S. government did a, a bailout for huge corporations. So the people that really needed the help um, are not getting the help. And that always results in a sort of a right wing, revanchist sort of backlash. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing in the U.S. Um, but the people on the opposite side of the spectrum, um, you know, are, are basically trying to use, um, I guess, social media um, and online media to try to counter those narratives. Um, but it's very difficult, I think, to do that, um, especially when you have, you know, extreme right wing state legislatures all over the U.S. Um, that are supporting them. And you have families like the uh, the Mercers who are uh, funding a lot of these sort of right-wing conspiracy theory groups. Um, and you have organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that are funding all of these, um, you know, these open the state, you know, these programs, these um, campaigns to open the states back up because, of course, ALEC is funded um, mostly by large businesses, um, and they want the U.S. to open back up because they want um, to continue making money. Um, so all of the agents that are um, present and most powerful in this current moment are on the far extreme right. Um, and it's, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't see a way forward, um, really, other than through the ballot box, I suppose. But I mean, that's a whole other, <laughs> I think that's a whole other um, conversation that you'd have to have at a later date. Yeah, challenges abound. And uh, especially in a time like this, that there are so many moving pieces. Uh, like you said, Dr. Hasbun, we're still in, in the middle of it, I guess. Uh, one of the questions here is one that, uh, even though we question the existence of silver linings, is, uh, is there good news? Is there the potential that the pendulum could swing the other way, that we're looking at conflict between oil states, we're looking at uh, Russia flexing its muscle, we're looking at instability uh, in a number of countries? Is, is there any silver lining or is there something that could happen which would make us feel like we're all in it together, hashtag all in it together? Uh, Dr. Hospo, maybe if, if you want to start. Well, I think we, we there only can be a silver lining if we imagine there to be to be a possible silver lining. So let me say, you know, the the the, the idea that people can mobilize and rethink and say, well, you know, the everything from the system, the international or the the liberal international order and the system of you know uh, uh, global governance to uh, you know the 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 healthcare system in the United States, you know, are things that seem like like uh, are are failing in this context. Um, and not responding. So I think, you know, we can rethink those and say, well, this is a time to, uh, you know, think in more, much more radical terms. I mean, they, you know, you could read about people talking about nationalizing the airline industry or the defense industry or, or things like this, or the oil industry, energy, you know, are thinking about radical solutions. So I think there are, there is a, a moment where people can open up and say, well, what kind of different types of organizations, what kind of norms, like, and I think this is one thing that, that because of the, you know, withdrawal of the Bernie Sanders campaign, presidential campaign, there has been a kind of decline in that kind of debate about a, a broader debate within certain segments of, you know, uh, the public about what are some ideas to rethink 
the structure of the American political economy or, or at the international level, the, the, the international order. And I think we need to have those conversations and only by having them and rethinking will there be a possibility for that path forward, even if we can look around us and say, well, it looks like it's all going in the other, other direction. We have to keep in mind that there is, we can imagine a different possible uh, alternative, and then you could have a cascade, kind of like with the you know the Arab uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt and so forth. You can't have a cascade of people imagining, well, let's go in that other direction, let's try it out, let's come up with a mechanism to have a debate about it. Milena, any thoughts on that? Sure. So um, you know some silver lining. So first, just a small kind of you know fact. Um, we've been talking about the Middle East. One country that we haven't talked about a lot is Syria, which, you know, Syria has certainly been in the news a lot over the last, um, you know, several years. In March, I just read this the other day, in March there has been, in Syria, there was the lowest number of civilian deaths in many years. And perhaps that is because of, I don't want to say like distancing, but but sort of a temporary halt in the in, in the conflict you know, in light of COVID-19. So, so perhaps in some countries, some, some areas of the world, there are sort of small temporary positives in the sense that the conflicts are, are, are on hold. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a long-term silver lining because nothing has been resolved, but perhaps temporary holds. Um, in terms of other silver linings, I would just mention, um, you know, perhaps the idea that this entire international political and economic order doesn't work. You know, we talked a little bit about the Security Council, the United Nations, the P5, the permanent members of the Security Council. The idea of the veto power really doesn't make much sense. You know, if, if you think about it, yeah, it, it makes no sense to say that one of the permanent five members can for no reason whatsoever just decide to halt a global action that everybody else agrees on, you know, is, is a good idea. Um, the fact that our international development lending policies, economics, that that doesn't work really well at all, that basically since decolonizations, many developing countries have been stuck in this cycle of debt forever, you know, so that that needs to be uh, re, you know, reviewed and, and, and kind of rethought about. And then um, I would say on the more domestic level, perhaps there's something to be said about the role of government and the existence of social safety nets. We saw that, you know, when people in Germany are told you can't work, they don't panic and they don't panic because they can get unemployment benefits, which equal about 85% of your salary for, you know, sort of an indefinite period of time. You know, perhaps not in, indefinite, you know, perhaps it can last for 10 years, but certainly can last a year. In the United States, people get at best $1,200 in a one-time, you know, payment. And so, yeah, many people in our country are desperate to go back to work because they don't have any other source of income. And so perhaps there's something to be said about the appropriate role of government in every domestic society. Dr. Marshall, any thoughts? I know you were anti-silver lining earlier, but I'll give you a chance. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think um, all of those, uh, every, everything that's been said is is an excellent case. Um, rethinking the, the welfare state and, and sort of trying to revive that. And if you can get business leaders um, basically to agree to that, which they did, of course, during the New Deal, um, because it was to their own benefit um, to, to agree to those policies, um, that would be great. Um, the, the, the issue is you're going to have to start actually taxing those people, right? So earlier when we were talking about the Gates Foundation being a huge funder of the WHO, right? Uh, one human being shouldn't have so much money that he can single-handedly fund a major international 
organization, right? Um, not single-handedly, but be a major source of that funding, right? I mean, he these people need to be taxed and their money needs to go to the government so that the government can provide programs, including uh, elements of the welfare state, social security, unemployment, better hospitals, better schools, um, all of these things. And until we realize that uh, we need to totally um, redo the tax system in the United States and actually, you know, start collecting taxes from people who have been evading them for decades and offshoring and, and everything else, we're not going to be able to pay for any of the programs that everyone is going to agree we need to have when this crisis is over. And we can point to them um, all that we want and say, you know, this would have helped, this would have slowed the spread, this would have done this. But if if we don't have buy-in from the from the business community and especially from the uh, finance community, which is where most of the money is, um, then we're not going to have the funds to actually do that. Um, another great great silver lining would be uh, um, uh, shrinking the defense budget, um, and I think that might also be part of the narrative going forward, especially the response to the the flyovers, the Blue Angels flyovers, and and people saying, you know, how much, how many masks or ventilators uh, could we have gotten in exchange for that, you know, show of uh, for the the air show, um, the flyover show that the Pentagon did to show support for um, frontline coronavirus workers. Um, so when society starts actually asking questions like that and, and presses on their elected officials to make those kind of dramatic fiscal changes and those dramatic um, economic changes, I think then maybe we can start to move towards something better. Hmm. Uh, a pretty good try for silver silver lining. Thank, That's a thank silver, you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you all so much. I have a little uh, script to read here, but this was a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you everybody who tuned in uh, for this first virtual Happy Dog. Um, Happy Dog is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. The Happy Dog, uh, and we hope to be back there soon, uh, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and Ideastream. The City Club virtual forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, and PNC. Additional support from Bank of America, the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and Thompson Hine, and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors uh, you can find them all at cityclub.org slash thank you. Uh, I hope you do um, keep in touch and uh, find us all on Twitter if you have more comments. Uh, I tried to fit in as many as I could, uh, but thank you again for tuning in. I am Tony Ganser, and uh, our forum is adjourned. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.